welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. I'm waiting till the music's over. And I am Steve. And today we are going to continue on with part two of the American Revolution. We're going to continue on with the the pre-revolution, I guess, mm-hmm. is what we're going to call this. That is it indeed. Complicated. Yeah, lots the of whole lots thing of politics is, and those yeah. pesky colonials yeah. disturbing the king. So, and it's interesting too, uh, you know, as I was reading over the notes for today, kind of preparing for today's episode, um, it's interesting the way that history changes. Uh, we view we view events through historical glasses. Do you know what I mean? Like, we now call these people patriots, but in the time. It was just a bunch of rabble-rousing people that were fighting against the the governance, really. And now they're and now we call them patriots, and we make heroes out of them. And it's real. And I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm just saying that if you if you look at it through the lens of history, 200 years kind of changes people's outlook on on situations, and it's interesting to me. All right. <laughs> so I, I, just, I guess it's more like I just wonder things now, not even necessarily political things, but just things now, like Elon Musk, for example. Right now, he is, I think of Elon Musk as sort of an eccentric. And I'm curious, 200 years from now, how people are going to think of him. Is he still going to be thought of an, as an eccentric or is he going to be thought of as like a pioneer of space and industry? Well, we've talked about that living living through history. And, you know, with a lot of our episodes, we have talked about like, I said, man, I would like to have lived during that time period. But now that we're in this time period, we were just discussing this the other day. You look <laughs> at all the stuff. All the stuff that has gone on just in this year alone. And it's and, only been six months. And <laughs> this is going to, the period that we are living right now is going to be recorded in history. You know, kids a hundred years from now, and it, it's, are going to be learning about this and reading about this. And it's just hard for us to picture because we're living in it now. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, the, the folks who were, you know, lived through the, uh, the Spanish American flu, or the the Spanish flu, and then went through World War One, and then went through the Great Depression. Did they realize? Are they like us? We did they realize, realize yeah. we're living in history? And did they say, "Wow, someone's going to be reading about us one day"? Yeah, I, maybe I don't know. And it's interesting too. I don't think we talked about it on the show, but you and I talked about how we are um, in the middle of, or maybe not even in the middle, maybe in the early stages of. Uh, you know, people went through the industrial revolution and we are now going through the technological revolution. Well, we may be going through round two. I think the microchip was the first. But that, I mean, not right now, but in our lifetimes, I mean. Okay, I get you. Yeah, so, and it's interesting. And you don't really think about that, especially, um, I think, when you have a quote-unquote revolution like that, like the industrial revolution or the technological revolution, Something that doesn't happen over the course of just a year or two, but over the course of almost a generation, really, it's a slow revolution. It's a slow growth, and I so I don't think that people in the, while you're in the middle of it recognize 
that. Yeah. It's like when you have a kid and you see the kid every day and you don't realize how the kid is growing and then you know, you see a friend that you haven't seen in five years and they're yeah, like, that oh kid man, grew six kid. inches. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just, I don't know, food for thought. I know, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about. I'm just trying to be insightful and thinking they're going to be reading about us one day. You think we're going to make it? You and I are going to make it in the history Well, this, this podcast will, <gasps> Maybe. will still be out there for future generations to listen hmm. to. And they say, Steve and Kim on an hour for your life. Man, they were just so insightful. They they foresaw this. We'll be in the history book chapter four. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, so we're going to continue on with our pre-revolution. Do you want to do a quick recap? Yeah, let's let's do a quick recap. All right. Go ahead. Do you want to do it or you um, want me to? I mean, jump in if I'm, okay. if I'm forgetting something. So we had uh, the French and Indian War, which was costing a lot of money, and we had um, the the alliance against Prussia, which was costing a lot of money. So everybody's fighting with everybody. So basically a big world war going on, and England needed money. England's broke, and so let's tax the colonists. However, the colonists didn't have any representation in Parliament, so they didn't feel like it was fair that they were getting all of Time out. Taxes. You remember when we go to Washington, D.C., do you know what the license tags on the vehicles in Washington, D.C. say? No taxation without representation. Okay. Uh, more food for thought for you there. Um, in case you didn't know, the the people of Washington, D.C. are not represented in Congress, right? Okay, but that is because of the United States Constitution. Right, but it's okay. it's it's interesting, though. I think it was designed like that because people were not supposed to be living in the district. It was supposed to be a governmental area. Over time, people have started living there. Well, that's so, their own yeah. fault then. Anyway, anyway, um, so where were we? Oh, yeah, the Indians. Let's see. I'm looking no taxation back without representation. No repre- yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the Indians, uh, they kind of, you know, the British kind of bought out the Indians and put up a barricade between Indian land and and British American land. They put land. outpost out. Yeah. Uh, but the king still needed more money, so we introduced the Stamp Act, which basically you pay for all of the paper that you use. And, and then um, they hit us up with the Quartering Act, which basically said that... We don't have enough room for all our soldiers, so you colonists, colonists are going to have to put them up and feed them yep. and take care of their horses. Yeah. And then Patrick Henry gave that great speech about give me liberty or give me death. And then we had the Ra- Townsend Revenue Act, which then enacted a tax on glass, paint, oil, lead, paper, and tea. That last one's important. Uh, and nobody liked it. And uh, then we had the Boston Non-Importation Agreement, which basically said that... Um, no, we're not there yet. You're jumping ahead. Oh, just kidding. Yeah, you're, you're jumping ahead. All right, sorry. So... Now we're going to talk about the Boston yeah. Non-Importation Act. So there yeah, we so, are. Give me liberty, give me death, and stop taxing everything under the sun. Yeah, so okay. basically what we have right now is... England is really upset with the the uh, the colonials. The colonials are really upset. They've formed they're they're forming their own government right now. The first Continental Congress, I believe, has already met. No, no, not yet. Not there yet. Okay, 
but they, they are organizing yes. to do this. Okay. Yeah. yeah they're, so they're starting to organize and getting their ideas together, putting the, putting all these thoughts together, it's documenting, the, writing things down. The very and, early stages of all of this. We're yeah. going to get deeper into that organization yeah. this week. And England will pass an act. The Americans will pass a counter act. And things are really getting hot and heated right now. They're starting to boil over. Okay. So on August 1st, are you with us so far? Hopefully. Okay, because it's going to get... just stop and go back and listen to the next... Or the last episode and come back. Yep. Because it's going to get more complicated it's, even as we go forward. Well, it, it's going to get heated. It's going to get heated. too. Like, yeah. we have, we've just begun to, to inflame passions. Yeah, so on August 1st, 1768, the Boston Non-Importation Agreement came about. So going, um, going to spare you with all the preamble where they talk about the embarrassment by Britain, and just give you the five proclamations that the colonists spelled out. So they, it, it was a big, long proclamation. No kidding. That seems to be commonplace in this, in this era, is big, long proclamations. Yeah. Remember those 40-something or 50-something bits of, what was it, the Stamp Act, I think? Yeah. So first, um, that we will not send for or import from Great Britain, either upon our own account or upon commission, this fall, any other goods, then that are already ordered for the fall supply. So, okay, so that's one proclamation. We're not going to import anything from Great Britain this fall. Right. Secondly, that we will not send for or import any kinds of goods or merchandise from Great Britain, either on our own account or on commission or any otherwise from the 1st of January, 1769 to the 1st of January, 1770, except salt, coals, fish hooks and lines, hemp and duck bar, lead and shot, uh, wool cards and card wire. So for the next year... But we still need this stuff. We're not going to import anything from Britain except like these few things that yeah. we don't have. <laughs> Thirdly, that we will not purchase of any factor or others, any kinds of goods imported from Great Britain from January 1769 to January 1770. This kind of sounds redundant. It sounds very redundant. Fourthly, that we will not import on our own account or on commissions, a lot of legalese, I guess, yeah. or purchase of any who shall import from any other colony in America from January 1769 to January 1770, any tea, glass, paper, or other goods commonly imported from Great Britain. Oh, does that mean, so let's break this one down. Does this say we are not going to import from any other, oh, okay, so this is from. They're not going to import this stuff from Great Britain. Okay, this is from, this is from Boston. So the Bostonians are saying we aren't, if, if any other colony in America we're imports, not going to buy it from you. Yeah. Imports from Britain over the next year, we're not going to buy from you either. Fifthly, that we will not, from and after the 1st of January, 1769, import into this province any tea, paper, glass, or painter's colors, painter's colors, <laughs> until the act imposing duties on those articles shall be repealed. 
So this was in direct response to the Townsend Act. We're not going to import anymore after January 1st of 1769 that stuff that you taxed in the Townsend Act. We're not we're not getting it from you anymore. In Virginia, if you decide to go ahead and do it, we're not going to get it from you. Yep. Or any of the other colonies out there. In witness whereof we have hereunto set our hands this first day of August 1768. This is what led up to the Boston Massacre. Mm-hmm. And now, it's interesting that they gave so much time because this was the 1st of August and these acts went into, or these declarations, I guess, uh, went into effect the 1st of January. So we had all the fall to kind of go back and forth between Britain and America. All right, but... In, so people are really getting upset now. Yes. So the Boston Massacre took place. So remember, that was 1768. We're going to flash forward um, about a year and a half. Well, it basically lasted the entire year of the proclamations. Right. Okay. The Boston Massacre was a street fight that occurred on March 5th, 1770, between a patriot mob. And this is what I said at the beginning of the... Um, show that now we think of them as patriot, uh, but back then it was just a bunch of angry colonials. They were throwing snowballs, sticks, and stones, and a squad of British soldiers. Several of the colonists were killed, and this led to a campaign by speechwriters to rouse the ire of the citizenry, so we wanted to get everybody mad. The presence of British troops in the city of Boston was increasingly unwelcome, and this riot started when about 50 citizens attacked a British sentinel. A British officer, Captain Thomas Preston, called in additional soldiers, and those two were attacked, so the soldiers fired into the mob, killing three on the spot. Um, A black sailor named Crispus Attucks, rope maker Samuel Gray, and a mariner named James Caldwell, and wounding eight others, two of whom died later, Um, And those were Samuel Maverick and Patrick Carr. So, uh, I I just, it's so interesting, I think. You know, the British weren't welcome, but they were, at that time, the law and order of of Boston. Um, And so, you know, the citizens of Boston got really upset, and there was a big brawl where the the soldiers fired into the crowd, a town meeting was called demanding the removal of the British and the trial of Captain Preston and his men for murder. At the trial, John Adams and Josiah Quincy II defended the British, leading to their acquittal and release, which is interesting. You don't think of John Adams as being a British defender, but he was. Uh, Samuel Quincy and Robert Treat He Payne, gets mad later. <laughs> Samuel, Samuel Quincy and Robert Treat Payne were the attorneys for the prosecution, and later two of the British soldiers were found guilty of manslaughter. The Boston Massacre was probably the signal event leading to the Revolutionary War. It led directly to the royal governor evacuating the occupying army from the town of Boston, and it would soon bring the revolution to armed rebellion throughout the colonies. And so from just note that the occupation of Boston by British troops in 1768 was not met by open resistance. So in 1768, when they first drafted these declarations, the the British troops in Boston, nobody really wanted them there, but it wasn't openly hostile. 
it just kind of grew and grew and grew over the next year and a half when, um, you know, when the Bostonians stopped importing stuff and stopped working with the British. And I would imagine that maybe some of, and this is pure speculation on my part, but I would imagine that probably some of these hostilities came from the British soldiers uh, having a hard time getting goods from back home because I would think that some of those ships were stopped in the harbor and not allowed to supply their soldiers. And the soldiers maybe had to get stuff from Boston instead of from England. But that's pure speculation on my part. I don't know. I can imagine that had a lot to do with it because, you know, they wanted their tea, they wanted their Mm -hmm. stuff from home, and they weren't going to get it. Plus, I imagine there was a lot of snide comments, snowballs, and stuff happening that... Yeah. I, I imagine by this time the British soldiers knew they weren't welcome in Boston by most of the Bostonians at this point. So things are heated and they're getting even more heated right now. The British went and declared the Tea Act, which is pr- going to lead up to probably one of the most famous stories you know we mm-hmm. that we all learn about the uh, the American <sighs> Revolution called the Tea. Well, the we'll Boston Tea. Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> So the British East India British East India Company was on the brink of final financial collapse. Collapse. Whoo! I'm having a hard time. Lord North hatched a scheme to deal simultaneously with the ailing corporation and the problem of taxing the colonies. He declared to grant the British East India Company a trading monopoly monopoly with the American colonies. A tax on tea would be maintained, but the company would actually be able to sell its tea for a price that was lower than before. A monopoly doesn't allow for competition. As such, the British East India Company could lower its prices. Okay, you talk about collusion and scheming. <laughs> yeah, you right. know what? It, I, I don't see a lot of difference between back in the day and so the stuff similar. that goes like on right everything now. Everything is so similar. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The colonists, Lord North hoped, would be happy to receive the cheaper tea and willing to pay the tax. This would have the dual result of saving the tea company and securing compliance from the Americans on the tax issue. It was a brilliant plan. There was, of course, one major flaw in his thinking. They think we're stupid. That, you know... The, there's always a way around everything. No, no matter what kind of law you're going to pass, someone's going to come up with a way to backdoor it and, yeah, they, and get out of it. Lord North thought we were idiots, apparently. Yeah. So the colonists saw through this thinly veiled plot to encourage tax payment. Furthermore, they wondered how long the monopoly would keep prices low. It, they just didn't trust them. So activists were busy again advocating boycott. Many went further. British ships carrying the controversial cargo were met with threats of violence in virtually all the colonial ports. This was usually sufficient to convince the ships to turn around. Like They didn't need that trouble. Yeah. In Annapolis, which is in Maryland, citizens burned a ship and the tea it carried. Boston, of course, reacted similarly in an extreme fashion. This became known as the Boston Tea Party. And I think Bostonians kind of, they're still kind of like this now. Like the Bostonians don't take any crap today. All right, here's a quote from a participant in the Tea Party. Uh, This comes from, it's actually called, Account of a Boston Tea Party by a Participant. It was written in 1773. What's this guy's name? Anonymous. Anonymous. Not to be confused with the current Anonymous, 
uh, which I don't think they're related, but they might be. This might be the forefathers of <laughs> the current I don't anonymous. Think so. I think he's just claiming his yes. Na- not so we don't know who wrote it. Yeah, okay. we don't know who wrote it. Okay, so here's our quote. I then dressed myself in the costume. I bet it was Patrick Henry. <sighs> I then dressed myself in the costume of an Indian, equipped with a small hatchet, which I and my associates denominated the tomahawk, with which, in a club, after having painted my face and hands with coal dust in the shop of a blacksmith, I repaired to Griffin's Wharf, where the ships lay that contained the tea. We then were ordered by our commander to open the hatches and take out all the chests of tea and throw them overboard, and we immediately proceeded to execute his orders, first cutting and splitting the chests with our tomahawks, so as thoroughly to expose them to the effects of the water. In about three hours from the time we went on board, we had thus broken and thrown overboard every tea chest to be found in the ship, while those in the other ships were disposing of the tea in the same way at the same time. We were surrounded by British armed ships, but no attempt was made to resist us. So they dressed up like Indians, covered themselves in coal dust, and for the next three hours just broke, a tea open, party. <laughs> broke open all the tea and threw you know, it that, in the water. That is kind of hard to imagine that, I mean, they couldn't have been quiet. And so oh, no, I, I'm so, sure they were not. I'm really wondering then why no action was taken to to stop them from throwing the tea overboard. I don't know. I don't know either. I wonder And I've if, never read any account, so it would be pure speculation. Yeah, I don't know either. I wonder if it had anything to do with we already I mean this was obviously after the Boston Massacre. So things were already like the last time there had been a big incident. And maybe they were just saying, "Look, we don't we don't need any part of this." Right? Maybe so. I don't so, know. We can we can import more tea. Yeah, this could be the the I don't know. This is probably a poor comparison, but it could probably it may be the same kind of thing as when you see, um, you know, these days police officers taking a knee with protesters. You know, we don't want any trouble right now, so we're just going to hang back and let you dump the tea, and we'll the the government can deal with it later. Maybe so. So the damage in moderate American dollars exceeded three quarters of a million dollars. Not a single British East India Company chest of tea bound for the 13 colonies reached its destination. So not a single American colonist had a cup of that tea. Only the fish in Boston Harbor enjoyed that tea that day. Mm, that they night, were very thorough. And then came the intolerable acts. Oh, the intolerable acts are not good, but I... Basically, the intolerable acts were the catalyst for everything that came after, um, and I love the response to the intolerable acts. So, they were basically a punishment for the Tea Party. Essentially, Britain said, you no longer have the right to govern yourself, so sit down, shut up, and behave, or else. There were five acts, um, and and this is just a basic, we're not going to get super deep into it, um, but so this is kind of just a summary of these five acts. First was the Boston. Well, I don't want to say first. They all passed at once. Um, the Boston Port Act closed the ports of Boston until the colony paid for all that tea that had been destroyed. Now, remember, we're talking three quarters of a million dollars. And the colonists, are not, they don't have three quarters of a million dollars. That's a lot of money when you're just a little individual group coming up against the British crown. Uh, so the Royal Navy patrolled the harbor. The army was all over the streets. 
So already there had been British soldiers in the streets. Now there is even more. And the problem is, like so many other times throughout this story, it backfired. The whole city was being punished for the actions of a few people. And so a lot of other colonies took pity on on Boston and sent them so much stuff that the Boston leaders bragged that the town would become the chief grain port of America if this act stayed in place. So it really didn't accomplish what the, you know, the British monarchy wanted it to. The best laid plans. Right. Then we had the Administration of Justice Act, which accused or allowed accused soldiers to travel back to Britain or to another British jurisdiction to stand trial for crimes if the governor decided that they couldn't get fair treatment in the colonies. So, for example, um, now remember... This is years after the Boston Massacre, but if uh, um, Captain Preston, the guy that fired into the crowd at the Boston Massacre, he could have, under the Administration of Justice Act, gone back to England to stand trial instead of in the colonies. People disliked this so much that it was nicknamed the Murder Act because essentially it meant that British soldiers could get away with um, killing American colonists because then they didn't have to stand trial in the colonies. They could go back to merry old England. The Massachusetts Government Act revoked Massachusetts Charter and put it completely under British control. Leaders were appointed by either Parliament or the King and town meetings were limited to one per year. And that one meeting could only be called by the governor who was loyal to the crown. Some of the text from the act gave the governor the right to nominate and support and also to remove, without the consent of the council, all judges of the inferior courts of common pleas, commissioners of Oyer and Terminer, the attorney general, provost, marshals, justices of the peace, and other officers, and nominate and appoint the sheriffs without the consent of the council. So essentially, the Massachusetts Government Act took away all self-governance from Massachusetts and gave it back to Britain. Mm. The Quartering Act, which was kind of a revision to uh, something that had already been put in place, previously the colonists had been required to provide housing for soldiers, but obviously this was met with a lot of resistance. So the Quartering Act allowed the governor to house soldiers in any unoccupied building. Now, there's a little historical controversy and disagreement here because it's kind of unclear how many people were still being forced to provide shelter for the troops in their homes. So basically, the Quartering Act was just an extension of the other um, policies that had already been put in place that required people to house soldiers in their homes. Now, they also had to house them in any unoccupied building. And who's to say how that building got unoccupied? We'll just say that. And then the Quebec Act, which is not really a big deal. Um, Basically, it just expanded the size of the Quebec territory and instituted some reforms that benefited the French Catholic inhabitants of the area. And the main reason it's part of the Intolerable Acts is because it was passed during the same legislative session as the other acts. So it's not the Quebec Act. Back in merry old London, right? Yeah. So the Quebec Act is not, it's, it's not really a big deal. Um, And the goal of the acts was to make an example of Massachusetts and isolate radicals. But like always, it backfired big time. And instead the intolerable acts solidified and unified the colonies, which led to the first continental Congress. King George 
severely. Uh, he's not a good politician. Yeah, he he mis misjudged the <laughs> colonist here. Yeah, he's not very good at politics. So on September 5th through October 26th came the first Continental Congress, which met in Philadelphia and came up with the Declaration and Resolves. Yep. Whereas since the close of the last... This is the Declaration Resolves? Yes. Okay. Whereas since the close of the last war, the British Parliament claiming a power of right to bind the people of America by statutes in all cases whatsoever hath, in some acts, expressly imposed taxes on them. I love how they talked back then. (laughs) And in others, under various presences, but in fact, for the purpose of raising a revenue, hath imposed rates and duties payable in these colonies, established a board of commissioners with unconstitutional powers, and extended the jurisdiction of courts of admiralty, not only for collecting the said duties, but for the trial of causes merely arising within the body of a county... And this is just the beginning, but I think you get the idea. In this declaration, we start to recognize the beginning of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And you have to look it up and read it for yourself. It's pretty long. But on October 20th, 1774, the association plan was revealed, which forbade trade with England. So no British goods were brought in, and two other important decisions were made. Okay, let's talk about language here real quick. Sure. Okay, so... The Bible, a lot of the, you know, many of the Bibles are written in King James. Yeah, English. we talked about this on yeah. our yeah. So, on our snakes. W- could we call this uh, King George's English? Sure. I mean, yes. From from your linguistic standpoint, uh, no. What is the style? All these I don't know proclamations and declarations being written in. I don't know. It's not old English. Old English is older than this. Um, a lot of legalese. It is a lot of legalese. I. I don't know, is the short answer. Um, So uh, October 20th, 1774, um, the association plan revealed forbade trade with England, no British goods brought in, and uh, then two other important decisions were made. First, if the intolerable acts weren't reversed within a year, the colonists would no longer export goods to Britain either. That's a big deal because... Remember, we talked about last week that we could grow things that Britain couldn't grow um, just because we had a little bit of a different climate than they did. Also, the united part of the states started when the Congress decided that if the British attacked Massachusetts, the rest of the colonies would jump in and defend them. So now we have the, the fledgling United States of America um, Still not As recognized by... Still not recognized, but but these intolerable acts really... They're really King a, George basically sealed his fate with the intolerable yeah, acts. Yeah, so now the Americans are really asserting their... Uh, yep. Now, we ain't going to take it no more. Yep. Now we are united, and now we're really doing something besides not importing anything. We're not going to export anything to you either, so... So, now we're moving up to probably another famous part of American history if you oh, know, yeah. that we studied in school. The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. So it, things continue to get tense. Uh, Britain deploys ships to Boston Harbor, and they they are really getting ready to, uh, to make a march and quell these American rebels. And I know we mentioned it last week, um, but just a reminder, if you want to trace the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere and you want to see all of this stuff... 
check out the Freedom Trail in Boston, and you can go see the Old North Church and follow the route that Paul Revere took. So while Paul Revere was definitely significant in American history and with all this and involved with the politics, I think the best way to describe Paul Revere, though, is he was just your common, ordinary guy. He was a silversmith. Mm -hmm. He did a lot of other little things like that. But um, basically, he was just a popular local businessman. Yeah, his his dad was um, an immigrant. He was an artisan. And so Paul Revere never, he didn't inherit a lot. He wasn't born to a wealthy family. Um, when he died, he he died, you know, modestly well off, but not anything special. I would say Paul Revere in today's terms was solidly middle class. Uh, he ended up with five children, several great-grandchildren, and a whole slew of great-grandchildren. And he actually lived... For a long time, he didn't die until he was 83. Hmm. So, um, yeah, so Paul Revere was, he was just a guy. Spoiler alert, he made it through the Revolutionary War. (laughs) Okay. Fact. So, in 1774, in the spring of 1775, Paul Revere was employed by the Boston Committee of Correspondence and the Massachusetts Committee of Safety as an express writer to carry news, messages, and copies of important documents as far away as New York and Philadelphia. So, basically, he was employed as a courier. Yeah. That's what, that's what he did. Side gig. Yep. On the evening of April 18th, 1775, Paul Revere was summoned by Dr. Joseph Warren of Boston and was given the task of writing to Lexington, Massachusetts, with the news that regular troops were about to march into the countryside northwest of Boston Harbor. So we said that these troops, or England had... Had enough, mm-hmm. and they, they brought all these the troops. They, now... they brought all these troops into the ships into Boston Harbor, and now they're going to turn them loose, and they're going to quell these rebel Americans this right was, now. Yep, this was in response to the First Continental Congress. Yep. So, according to Warren, these troops planned to arrest Samuel Adams and John Hancock, who were staying at a house in Lexington, and probably probably continue on to the town of Concord to capture or destroy military stores which would have been gunpowder, ammunition, and cannons. Which, so I just want to remind you that the troops planned to arrest Samuel Adams. Remember that a few years before, Samuel Adams had actually worked for the Crown in the defense of the guys who were accused of perpetrating the Boston Massacre. So the Americans have been stockpiling these arms and munitions and the cannons there. In fact, the British troops had no orders to arrest anyone. Dr. Warren's intelligence on this point, was faulty. So he acted on... False information? Fa- false information. Mm. Today, Mike, you know, I I don't know where he got this, but was it rumor or did he make it up? His, what, Whatever. His spy was not that, that maybe great. Maybe there was a spy that, <clears throat> you know, just saw something that they thought they saw. Yeah. But whatever. So Revere uh, contacted an unidentified friend, probably... Robert Newman, the section of, of Christ Church in Boston's North End, and instructed him to show two lanterns in the tower of Christ Church, now called the Old North Church, as a signal in case Revere was unable to leave town. The two lanterns meant that the British troops planned to row by sea uh, across the uh, Charles River to Cambridge rather than march by land out of Boston Neck. So, I mean, we've all heard, heard they... One if, one if by land, two if by sea. Yeah. Also, so, uh, Robert Newman, I know his great, great, however many great granddaughters. You do? I do. From where? Uh, from high school. Flannery? You know, you, you've met Flannery. Okay. The bird girl that, well, yep. now she's a bird girl. She wasn't always a she's bird She's one girl, of your students. Former student. Okay. Yeah. 
So Revere then stopped by his own house to pick up his boots and overcoat and proceeded the short distance to Boston's North End waterfront where two friends waited to row him across the river to Charleston. Slipping past a British warship in the darkness, Revere landed safely. After informing Colonel Conant and the other local Sons of Liberty about recent events in Boston and verifying that they had seen his signals in the North Church Tower, Revere borrowed a horse from John Larkin. A uh, Larkin was a Charleston merchant and a Patriot sympathizer. While the horse was being made ready, a member of the Committee of Safety named Richard Devins warned Revere that there were a number of British officers in the area who might try to intercept him. About 11 o'clock p.m., 2300, Revere <laughs> set off. After narrowly avoiding capture just outside of Charleston, Revere changed his planned route and rode through Medford, where he alarmed Isaac Hall, the captain of the local militia. Uh, he then alarmed almost all the houses from Medford through... Um, Met, met, Monotomy, men, yeah, Monotomy. <laughs> today's Menomity. today's Arlington. <laughs> Carefully avoiding the royal mansion, whose property he rode through. Isaac Royal was a well-known loyalist, and he arrived in Lexington sometime after midnight. So that what was he? What was he saying this whole time while he was? The British are coming. The British are coming. <laughs> Is that how he alerted them? That's how he alerted them. Oh, okay. As he rode through, and right. that's how he alerted them all. So. That is how we got the midnight ride of Paul Revere riding this horse, saying, saying, the British are coming, the British are coming. In Lexington, as he approached the house where Adams and Hancock were staying, a Sergeant Monroe, acting as a guard outside the house, requested that he not make so much noise. <laughs> noise, cried Revere. You'll have enough noise before long. The regulars are coming out. At this point, Revere still had difficulty gaining entry um, until, according to tradition, John Hancock, who was still awake, heard his voice and said, Come in, Revere. We're not afraid of you. And he was allowed to enter the house and deliver his message. And I'm sure he was very grateful for that because, you know, he had to, he was probably real tired. It was an hour horse ride. Amped up on yelling, adrenaline. Yelling, yelling, the British are coming yeah, the entire right? way. So about half- I mean, you got to imagine there was a lot of adrenaline pumping oh, through him I'm at that point. Oh, I'm sure. I'm, I can't imagine. About half past 12, William Dawes arrived in Lexington carrying the same message as Revere. And after both men had refreshed themselves, uh, so got something to eat and drink, they decided to continue on to Concord, Massachusetts to verify that the military stores had been properly dispersed and hidden away. And a short distance outside of Lexington, though, they were overtaken by Samuel Prescott, who they determined was a fellow high son of liberty. And a short time later, a British patrol intercepted all three men, Prescott and Dawes escaped. Revere was held for some time, questioned, and let go. So you can imagine, like, he was already amped up. He's, he, like, it just keeps going. And then he gets caught by the British. But then, I mean, he was released. But then before he was released, his horse was confiscated and, repl- and uh, was supposed to replace the tired mount of a British sergeant. So left alone on the road, Paul Revere returned to Lexington on foot in time to witness the later part of the battle on Lexington Green. Now here's some trivia for you. Did Paul Revere finish his midnight ride? What do you think? Well, no, because he got caught by the British. It is well known that Paul Revere was captured on the road outside of Lexington and never arrived in Concord. It is also well known that a third man of Revere's party, Dr. Samuel Prescott, who joined Revere and Dawes outside of Lexington, did alarm the militia in Concord where he lived. Thus, 
it has sometimes been argued that Paul Revere never actually finished his ride. No. But he did enough. He did enough. Samuel Prescott finished it for him. It's fine. What was the name of Paul Revere's horse? Well, the question should probably be, what was the name of the horse Paul Revere rode? Because You are correct. Because there's no evidence that Revere owned that horse at the time he made his famous ride. Remember, he he borrowed it from somebody. Larkin. He, He may have owned a horse at an earlier date. And if he didn't, he certainly had ready access to horses at some point in order to become the experienced rider that he was. Well, I mean, wasn't everybody back then? I mean, it's not like you just hop in your car. He, you know, yeah, I mean, but you had to hop again, on your horse. But uh, we've been to Paul Revere's house. Even in, you know, the 1700s, it was crowded. Like, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of room for... I'm sure there were stables around. ...a horse garage at Paul Revere's house. Um, if he had owned a horse in April 1775, it's unlikely that he would have tried to bring it with him when he was rode across the Charles River to Charlestown prior to setting off on his Maybe ride. Maybe the horse swam. <sighs> Revere left several accounts of his midnight ride, and although he states that he borrowed the horse from John Larkin, neither he nor anyone else takes much notice of the mount or refers to it by name. Paul Revere simply calls it a very good horse. Well, it just ran a mile, or well, yeah, ran for was, an hour. It was in good shape. In the years since 1775, many names have been attached to the animal, the most exotic probably being Shots and Rod, <laughs> which means uh, the shooting ride, right? In German, uh, Shots and Rod? Yeah. Uh, the only name for which there is any evidence, however, is Brown Beauty. So, all of this is the precursor to the American War for Independence. You want to sum it all up for us in our fourth grade package? Yeah. So to sum it up in the fourth grade package of where we all in Ohio learned about the American Revolution, England was broke and needed money from the wars it was fighting. King George thought he could tax the colonists to pay for the wars. The colonists had enough of British taxes and weren't exactly happy of being taxed without any representation from Parliament back in merry old England and I'm sure much of this was talked about and discussed over many pints of ale in the local public houses and in the community greens. Yep. So at this point, we've had enough. We've had our first Continental Congress. The, Brit- the British troops have landed. Yep. So there's it's troops ready to fight. Showtime. It's showtime. And so this week's episode is going to be a little bit short, but we just couldn't get it all in in last an week. hour last week. Yeah. And so this week's episode is going to be a little bit short. But next week, we will kick off with the shot heard around the world when we generally accept that the American Revolution started. And you can't be too mad that this week's episode is short because we're getting it out for you early. Um, And the reason that we're getting it out for you early is because Steve, uh, we mentioned last week, is going to be um, out of town this weekend at the funeral of Patrick Kelly. So once again, our condolences to Opie's family um, and our I, I shouldn't say our, not my, Steve's brothers in arms, um, who hopefully will get to, you'll get to spend some time with this weekend. Yeah, we're still going to release it on Saturday. Oh, we are? Yeah. Oh, I thought we were releasing it today. No. Oh, well, just kidding. You don't get an early episode. I mean, it's earlier than it has been, but sorry. I, I can set the timer to release it on Saturday. Well, I think we should release it early, but anyway, that's fine. All right. So. All right. So... The American Revolution, pre-revolution, in a nutshell, what probably took some people study for years and years and years. <laughs> some people you, wrote doctorates about this. Yeah, you guys you, got you, it in you've like gotten it an, about hour an hour and 45, 45 minutes. minutes or so. so. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. But we did the uh, Reader's Digest condensed version 
Uh, it's There's really so much stuff fascinating out stuff to read about, to listen about. There are a lot of good documentaries about the American Revolution. If, if you ever get the chance and you're in Boston, oh, yeah. Um, also, walk the walk down there. I also recommend David McCullough's book, 1776. Yeah, really lot, Lots of good stuff in history about the American Revolution. So, Kim, if somebody has any comments or questions of us, how do they get hold of us? You can email us at alosthour at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at alosthour, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at an hour of your life. We would love to hear from you, as always. So, from our beautiful studios in Sugar Creek, Ohio. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources for this and last week's episode include Wikipedia, ushistory.org, americaslibrary.gov, Mrs. Hall, Steve's fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Thurman, my fourth grade teacher, and Kellen, who is closest to fourth grade and will be moving on to sixth grade in the fall, whatever that's going to look like.